the Digiday podcast. My name is Tim Peterson. I'm a senior media editor at Digiday. And I'm Kaylee Barber, media editor at Digiday. So Kaylee, you had the interview this week and you spoke with Nico Senegon, who is the chief revenue officer of Politico EU. Kaylee, it's been, what, a little over a year since Axel Springer acquired Politico. I'm curious, like, what did Nico say about how things have changed over there in that year? Yeah, so it has been just about a year. I kicked off the conversation kind of asking that question um, because I'm curious, you know, Politico EU and Politico US were historically kind of operated uh, separately before the acquisition. And since then, he's really talked about how they're focused on this kind of globalization strategy. So the teams, um, you know, the revenue teams and the editorial teams are definitely starting to work together a little bit more closely. Um, and that leads into, you know, advertising kind of, he's the word synergies quite a bit. So I'll just kind of introduce that word now. But really, it's it's about kind of uh, getting advertisers, you know, in front of audiences in both EU and US. Um, from an editorial standpoint, it's definitely looking for more opportunities to cover um, the news, you know, for example, unfolding in the Ukraine um, on a more global scale and how policies in the EU are, uh, you know, of interest to, to US, uh, you know, organizations as well. And so there's these opportunities to really kind of merge the two audiences, which is what he really kind of talks about um, in the episode. Um, And then also, you know, opportunities for growth beyond uh, just US and EU. I think, you know, he kind of teases the idea of more of a global brand and what that could look like um, from like a editorial product standpoint. We don't have any kind of, you know, set dates that he shares about when that might happen. But it is overall this, you know, cohesive uh, growth opportunity under Axel Springer that I think is starting to unfold. But he does also mention that there's a lot of uh, sorting out of, you know, positions and uh, the flow of the organization and things like that still um, to come. And so, I mean, in terms of like bringing together the different properties like the U.S. and the EU properties, would that also mean bringing together their subscription businesses? Or I guess, like, would that not happen until, like, the properties are brought together? Or are they looking to do it on the subscription front maybe sooner than later? Yeah. So he does kind of, um, well, I I kind of asked that as well, like, you know, what does this mean for someone uh, who's currently subscribed to Politico EU? Are you going to be, you know, adding access to, uh, you know, Politico US, for instance. Um, He mentioned that there's the possibility of doing some sort of bundle situation, um, really trying to find ways to serve the audience for both brands in a a way that's, I think, probably a little bit more economically feasible. Um, The price point for Politico obviously is pretty high. Um, So we talk about that a little bit. um, And yeah, he really is is trying to look at the ways in which the subscriber is also uh, potentially like an advertiser or potentially like a speaker for an event. And there's a lot of opportunities to monetize um, readers of Politico outside of just the, you know, paid subscriber um, reader revenue avenue. And I think that was a really interesting part of this conversation that we get into, um, you know, towards the end is 
how does this globalization strategy also increase like the lifetime value of the reader that he's currently, you know, reaching with Politico EU, but eventually in the US as well. Got it. Interesting. Okay, I'll let you take it away. Thanks. All right. Thanks, Tim. Hi, Nicholas. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. How are you? I'm good. Very good. So I think the first question I want to ask you, because it's been pretty much exactly a year since Politico was acquired by Axel Springer. And I know we've chatted about this briefly in the past, but I am curious, how has it been going under the new ownership? It's been doing well. We have um, worked together on the uh, expansion of the business to a global business, uh, working on strategic uh, plans and how we can operate uh, as unified uh, business now together. So I know in the past, the political EU and political US were kind of operated separately. And I'd love to kind of unpack the ways in which that globalization kind of mission has been going on, like what that really means from a, uh, you know, operational level from like a really like a staffing level too. Um, but I guess like, yeah, how has the structure of the business changed at all? And really, like, the day-to-day has changed as you've been working closer with, uh, you know, Politico US and I'm sure the other brands under Axel Springer as well. Um, what's the kind of operational changes you've been noticing or having to, you know, manage? It's still in the making, I must say. We're still working on the details. The uh, immediate steps that we took was to get to know each other was to uh, identify synergies that will help us um, extending our business and, and, and identifying low-hanging fruits and also being available to our, our clients at global scale. So there are synergies that are automatic and uh, from a newsroom perspective. So there are synergies from a content perspective and newsrooms across the board work together. We're also now working on uh, client perspectives, so addressing clients at global scale. So again, it's in the making. Operational level, it's still in, it's still being discussed. Um, though the acquisition started a year ago, the actual implementation only started in 2022, so it's not that completely fleshed out. Uh, but it's a promising exercise, and it's uh, yeah, it's an interesting transition period for us. And prior to the acquisition, I'm curious how separately did. Politico US and Politico EU operate from each other? Like, did you have much, I guess, conversation, like regular conversation between the two sides of the the company, or was it fairly separated? There's always been conversation between Politico in, in DC and Politico in Brussels, because the uh, when Politico Europe was created, it was created with the support from Politico in North America. So conversation has all been ongoing. Uh, and synergies when needed, but it was more operated as two separate businesses than one. Uh, so it's a natural evolution of the conversation, but the conversation was already there. Uh, what was different is uh, in some areas of the business, we could have some different pricing, we'd have some different uh, structures, but um, this will come naturally as the implementation of the strategy evolves. But for now, we focus on the strategy. We need to go to the structure uh, as I said, which is an ongoing conversation for now. Yeah. And I'm I'm sure that that's, you know, changing to a degree how sales teams are operated. You mentioned that you're looking for more uh, global opportunities for your advertisers. And I do want to get into like the revenue side of the business a bit, uh, obviously, in this conversation. But I mean, right now, are you looking for like, is part of the strategy of figuring out what that operational looks like? Is it 
about hiring right now? Are you like really focused on trying to find people who can, you know, bridge the gap uh, between the two brands for advertisers? Are you more so kind of restructuring, you know, which roles are dedicated to different areas of the brands from like an advertising perspective? Like how's your kind of sales team changing as you think about what these operational synergies might look like? It's uh, two things I would say. First is to mix the economy between existing teams and, and new teams or evolution of existing teams. And second, the way the approach we have for the moment is client-centric. So we need to make sure that the audience we have, the customer, and the clients we have from a subscription and advertising point of view will see that as an opportunity to have access to Politico at larger scale. What it means exactly in terms of structures, as I said, is being discussed, but we basically need to take the best of both worlds and make it available to a global audience and, and some global clients. So we, we now have the opportunity for some clients that want to have a single um, access to Politico as a global brand, we're going to give them the opportunity to have access to it um, and, and, and see how we can uh, also uh, foster some collaboration at global scale with these existing clients that are not yet aware that we would operate uh, uh, and as an international company, as an international brand. Again, I'll dive further into more of the revenue side of things in a second, but sticking with this kind of global brand idea, I feel like that could mean a lot of different things. So I'd love to understand, you know, when you're talking with, uh, you know, the leadership at Axel Springer, uh, you know, internally, what a global Politico looks like? Is it like a new website that's going to be launched? Is it a new kind of, you know, branding element? Or is it more so about the actual strategy of distributing content? And like you said, like working with advertisers so that they can reach a broader audience? Like what's the kind of actual vision for, you know, a global Politico? It's it's a bit of everything, but we need some time to make it happen. Uh, Rebranding or, or working on a brand is not something that you do overnight, so it's an exercise that we need to look at. Uh, but the first thing is is from the existing uh, assets that we have across the pond and from the existing resources is how do we provide the most and the best of these two things. So as I said, from a newsroom perspective, there is connection. You can have stories coming from Europe and stories com- coming from North America um, from a subscription model, we can have some clients that want to subscribe to both Europe and North America, so we need to facilitate that. Um, so yeah, it's it's um, what you describe is coming up. So what is the new brand? What is the new uh, operational structure? It's still in conversation, uh, but our priority is to use existing resources and processes and optimize them as far as possible. Uh, in a more combined and aligned way. So it's an evolution more than a revolution, if I may say. Got it. Okay. When we spoke earlier too, you kind of talked about some, um, somewhat how the news cycle and, and recent events have created a need for more of that global storytelling, right? So I think you had mentioned the war in Ukraine as being really transformative for the way that policy is approached um, between the EU and US. Can you talk a little bit more about how recent world events have kind of led into this conversation? Is a lot of this globalized brand um, strategy coming from events like that and the need for really bridging the gap between, you know, the two areas of the world? Or how are you kind of looking at what's going on holistically in the world as a you know, catalyst for some of these changes? 
Interestingly, a, a, a situation like the war in Ukraine has triggered, no, no, first of all, is a, has a global impact. You could see how the different, I mean, you, you see what happened at the United Nations uh, last week, but you can see that it's a global story because we've got institutions at global level that here to sort of providing uh, safety and peace around the world. That's the first thing. The second thing is the impact on the business, which is an energy crisis, is also impacting all parts of the world. So, for these two reasons, we need we as political have a specific role to play in providing uh, power centers, in providing business leaders, and and and, and to, to some extent a larger population insight on how these stories impact policies across the pond. So policies the way they are discussed in Brussels, also policies the way they are discussed in DC, and also reconnecting DC with Brussels. Because this is how I see the world is evolving today. Is business has become global, but politics has also become a global play, a global ground. Right. Yeah. No. Absolutely. That that makes a lot of sense. I am curious too. With um, you know, obviously, as you evolve uh, the brand and look for the next kind of ways in which it can become very global. Um, again, like at a higher level, right now from an editorial standpoint, has there already been a lot of, um, you know, crossover with maybe syndicating content for both brands or looking for ways to tell the stories for U.S. audiences versus uh, EU audiences? I'm curious if there's already needed to be this kind of shift in an editorial standpoint to make sure that that global story is being told as quickly as it's unraveling. So I'm not the editor-in-chief, as you can imagine, so I'm not, I'm not going to go into what the uh, how the newsroom is telling stories, but as you could see from recent, uh, the way we position ourselves, for instance, ahead of Davos or the way we cover the United Nations General Assembly, uh, we cover it from both ends. We've got a newsroom that is coming to these events as one team. We need to give perspective to both regions and we need to explain to the European uh, audience a story covered from a European perspective, also from a North American perspective and vice versa. I think we need to provide access to global information, but you can still keep the original flavor because you need to you need to see from the world of uh, sorry from the eyes of the region you sit in. Yeah, I think that um, the audience piece is really interesting too, right? And I think one of the things that I wanted to ask you about is um, Axel Springer CEO Matthias Doffner was profiled by the Post, uh, I think a couple three weeks ago at this point um, about kind of his global ambitions for more nonpartisan journalism. Obviously, political reporting is going to have a really close seat to this issue. Um, but in the U.S., I think it's very fair to say that a lot of news has become polarized, like social issues become polarized very quickly. So having that nonpartisan kind of approach to journalism is a bit difficult. Um, and I think any kind of news publisher is going to relate to this, especially for a U.S.-based audience. I am curious, I guess this is a two-part question for you. So because the U.S., I think, has this issue of needing to figure out what the role of like nonpartisan journalism is in a lot of politicized issues, I'm curious if you think that Politico EU will need to adjust to kind of the audience in America and how there's that expectation that any coverage of any news issue is going to have some sort of bias in it. I think there's just this 
ingrained sense of um, needing for uh, trust and transparency in media. Like that's just been an ongoing story, right? And in, in the U.S. for any U.S. audience, I'm curious for uh, EU-based audience, have you had issues with readers? You know desiring, uh, you know, very transparent news coverage. Do you feel like that issue is as pertinent in the EU, first of all? And then I'm curious about the relationship between the U.S. brand and EU brand, uh, given that. But to start out, from your audience perspective, do you feel like there is that, you know, ongoing issue of authenticity, trust in covering, you know, what can tend to be polarizing news. So nonpartisan journalism is a value uh, which is core to uh, Politico in, in both regions, North America and Europe. So the way the newsroom approaches uh, stories is the same. And then I'm, as you know, live in Europe, so I'm more specifically uh, uh, knowledgeable about this part of the world. The expectation from an audience in Europe is to be nonpartisan. Uh, political Europe was born seven years ago, has been very successful in its development across everything, across uh, its network, across its brand uh, footprint, and also its uh, financial performance, because we're nonpartisan. Um, the fact that you have may have polarized media in North America is not specific to North America. You may have also polarized media in some specific countries across Europe, um, because that's in some ca- in some cases that the nature of the media landscape. So to be a global brand, uh, which is the ambition of Politico, you need to be nonpartisan. You need to have this global perspective and you need to have the same approach to the way you cover stories. So the stories may have a flavor that is slightly different in North America versus Europe, but the principle, the values are the same, which is we need to cover the story with a nonpartisan approach. So I feel like a lot of this conversation will have to go back to the editorial team. Um, to your point, you don't sit on that side. So I'm sure like the actual unpacking of that operation, those logistics is gonna is gonna fall more on that team. But um, you know, when approaching, I guess, and maybe we can get into some of the advertising uh questions now here as well. But like when you're looking at elevating brands to be global advertisers, right? I feel like other conversations I had, um, you know, recently, one conversation I had at DPS, our Digital Day Publishing Summit, was with The Independent, who is, you know, UK and uh, US based now. And what they said on stage was like, when something happens in the UK, some advertisers will react differently than US uh, advertisers. So the Queen died, advertisers in, in UK stopped, US kept going. When you're looking at kind of the global picture of advertisers in the U.S. versus EU, do you anticipate that there will be any challenges with that, like, I guess, brand safety question, um, the way in which, you know, advertisers might be um, comfortable advertising against certain news versus others? Like, do you feel like there will be any, I guess, changes to the way in which that brand safety question gets raised and how advertisers approach a global audience versus very regional audiences too? I would say brand safety is something that keeps brands awake at night, uh, regardless where they sit. Um, The difference between a national media and an international media is that uh, stories may have an impact, as you said, differently from one region to the next. We need to be nimble and we need to be um, flexible with our clients if they decide to have a global campaign. 
and want to continue to uh, be exposed in one region versus another, or they want to continue to run their promotional uh, assets, or run their campaign in one region versus the other, we need to have that flexibility and respect it. The brand safety is something that we all aim at. But as I said, because we've got non-partisan journalism, we the sort of environment you could find on political in Europe or political in North America is the same. But if a story has a different impact, uh, depending on what is the story comes from, where... Uh, and also how what is the affinity and the brand exposure from clients. So the fact that political grows an international brand will not change this approach. It's the same. We just need to have the flexibility. But as long as it's a, a, a an agreed value across the board, I don't see any problem. I'm also curious because, all right, we're talking about like globalizing a brand, right? And And that right now is looking at specifically EU and US, but obviously the world is a lot broader than that. Are there plans now to increase coverage of other regions, uh, you know, issuing other kind of teams based in, I don't know, Asia, uh, Middle East? Like, I guess, what's that kind of larger scope of, of globalization? Again, I'm not part of the newsroom, so I can't tell you exactly where they want to expand. But I would say, yes, we cannot. you cannot have the ambition to become a global brand and limiting yourself to some specific regions. But we need to go step by step. And initial steps are to bring together Europe and North America and, and, and cover this region uh, the best way possible. There are interesting other markets. The, the way we, we would, and again, I'm not talking on behalf of the newsroom, but the way we would approach new market is how do they connect with the existing ones? So, for instance, we know that it's uh, these two power centers that are the core to political uh, Brussels and, and, and Washington, D.C., but there's also interconnected with other places. For instance, in North America, it's connected to the other states. Uh, and in Europe, it's connected to each um, uh, uh, different countries. But then if we go beyond these territories, we need to make sure that uh, whatever country we decide to address or we decide to cover has to be connected to this. So if there's a story that starts in D.C. and has impact in other markets and beyond Europe, we would consider it. But yeah, but again, the, the, the choice of which country we cover and the way we cover it is an editorial one. So uh, as you know, it's, 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 not the, it's not my role to comment on this um, uh, as a chief revenue officer. But within your role as chief revenue officer, right, uh, let's let's unpack the kind of revenue for Politico EU right now. So I think um, historically Politico US has been about 50-50 subscriptions versus advertising. Um, that's That might have changed recently. But I am curious what your kind of breakdown is um, between the B2B side and the advertising side. Uh, I don't have any specific goal of breakdown between B2B and advertising, if I'm honest. I'm just trying to get uh, the global business, the overall business to grow. And I'm uh, using opportunities across both uh, B2B subscription and to some extent advertising and media solutions. The only difference is strategies are not the same, um, but there's no specific requirement to balance one way or the other. The main difference, as we discussed earlier on, is the uh, that Political Europe was born as a B2B subscription model. So the ratio of revenue coming from that specific line is obviously higher than the other one. But again, my role is not to be selective one versus the other. My role is to optimize revenue and optimize um, uh, client relationship across the pond. The only thing I could say is that the interesting thing with my role in Europe is 
overseeing both B2B subscription and media solution revenue, I can, again, facilitate uh, revenue growth by uh, being agnostic, client-centric and agnostic of business. I can take one brand, one client, and have conversation across the pond and not separate and uh, between B2B subscription or media solutions. But my motivation is growth, but not specifically one versus the other, because they complement each other. Right now, subscription B2B is higher uh, from a revenue stream than the media solutions. Uh, what's that kind of ratio right now, currently? It's one third, two third. Two third on the, on the subscription uh, side and one third on the media solution side. But again, bear in mind the, um, the history, uh, the legacy and the history of political in Europe. And interestingly, I would say, um, clients that have a pro-subscription more and more are interested in also communicating and not just being a pro subscriber. So this is the opportunity for us. Yeah, and we had talked about this too, which was really interesting. I think you had mentioned that about 50% of pro subscribers are also advertisers. Was that right? Yeah, it's about the ratio that we have. I mean, the number of clients from a pro subscription perspective is higher, but yes, we have about that ratio. Yeah. So what's the kind of selling strategy there? I'm curious if you are you know, offering any kind of like discounts to current subscribers from an advertising standpoint or uh, maybe even like subscriber-only rates for sponsorships or things like that? Like, is there a selling strategy to kind of bridge those two businesses? The selling strategy is about the value proposition we bring to these clients. Discount is a, when discount is in the conversation, it's a nice problem to have because you've engaged uh, far enough in the conversation with the client. For me, the important thing is how do we serve these clients the, 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 the best Sorry, from a uh, pro-subscription services so we have access to the information, the data, and we help them understanding and anticipate uh, how a uh, situation like the, the war in Ukraine is impacting policies and politics. But on top of that, within this period of uncertainty, these brands still need to communicate uh, on specific topics either related to their business or related to a specific policy that has been discussed uh, in Brussels. So it's more about uh, providing them with access to all different opportunities we have across the organization and just find a win-win solution for them and for us. Pricing comes next, I would say. Yeah, so within that pricing conversation too, because I again, a lot of uncertainty in the media industry at large uh, affects advertising budgets. We've been covering that pretty regularly at Digiday. I'm curious if in the past seven, eight months, I'm, I, I guess I'm estimating it to around the time that uh, you know Russia invaded Ukraine, have you noticed any changes to advertising budgets? You mentioned that there needs to be this um, conversation between the people in your you know readership community and, and your advertising community to be you know, vocalizing around some policies and, and what's going on. Has that, you know, radically changed budgets at all? Are people actually advertising more in order to be part of those conversations? Or what are you kind of seeing? I would say it's still a bit early to really have a strong visibility whether budgets will be deeply impacted because, um, 2022 budgets were decided and we're going to go into the planning of 2023 budgets. The thing that I've noticed is two things. One is the uh, decision process has been delayed. It's, it takes longer for clients to make decisions because they need to probably triple check more than before. And the second thing is the uh, phasing, the anticipation. 
the sort of midterm, we move from long-term to midterm more. So the planning of this budget uh, is more restricted over time than it was before for the same reason, because you need to keep this flexibility. So uh, if you commit for too long, then you need to pull back. It's a bit more complicated. So, And also for their planning, for their strategy, communication strategy perspective, I trust a client need to, to plan probably quarter by quarter as opposed to half year by half year. So it's the decision process that it takes longer and the sort of visibility from a client perspective that is shorter. So there's a sort of a two-dimension thing that had happened. But from a budget perspective, um, it's too early to, um, to comment at this stage, I would say. What does that mean from like a sales cycle turnout? Do you find that you have, I, I guess I don't know exactly how the conversations get started, but from maybe like RFP to signing a deal, that time seems longer then. Yeah, yeah. Um, it is definitely longer. It's, as I said, it's a decision process that is a bit longer, which makes for a role like mine, a chief revenue officer, a, a challenging exercise for forecasting. So from the other end of things, right, you sign the deal to execution. Is that time frame getting any shorter, like to turn out the actual campaign? Or do you find that there is a uh, less of a, a pressure to get it actually out the door? I'm guessing there's still a lot of checks and balances before a campaign gets released and, you know, launched live. But what's the, I guess, post-sale cycle has that changed at all? It has changed in uh, in the way we need to be more nimble based on decisions. There can be change of scope, uh, sometimes last minute because something happens or, uh, yeah, there's some big changes in terms of if you take energy prices, for instance, big decisions being made. So, yes, it's, it's more about the nimbleness, I would say, and the ability for my team from an execution standpoint to have this flexibility. Budget-wise, it's still kind of early to see. But as we're nearing the end of 2022, are you seeing that revenue for advertising or media services, as you guys call it, is going to be up year over year, like flush year over year? What's the kind of projections for revenue? I look. If you look at the industry, some uh, key players have done some analysis. Um, I think growth will still be uh, true for 2023 but in more limited terms or smaller terms. Um, I do think that specifically in an environment like ours at Politico, the need for corporate communication will still be very, very high, probably a bit more. Um, as I said, brands need to uh, be very active on specific topics and specific policy. Um, the world is changing. Uh, climate is a big issue, and even then better than ever. Um, energy is also in the, uh, under strong pressure. So on all these topics, uh, brands need, still to need to communicate, specifically at corporate level. So I would say uh, I don't expect a drop. But again, I don't have a crystal ball. I would say a growth, but not in exact same terms that we've seen in 2022. Got it, got it. So 2022 then has been a growth year overall. And then 2023, you're anticipating some growth, but maybe not as rapid as previous years. Indeed. Going into B2B in the subscription side of the business, I'd love to know how the, again, very busy news cycle has uh, contributed to subscriptions. Because in at least in the US, you know, big uh, political years like election years is going to increase um, subscriptions. Uh, certain leadership figures are going to increase subscriptions. And then once they're out of office, we'll tend to decrease subscriptions. Um, there's been a lot of ebbs and flows specifically with 
new subscriptions in the U.S. How has your business been um, from that standpoint? Like, obviously, you guys are more B2B, so there's a lot of, I'm sure, enterprise uh, subscriptions going on. But what's that business kind of netting out for this year? So I would say the busy, busy news agenda uh, has created one, has had one major impact, which is the uh, birth of a growing competition in the world of politics and policy. This is the first uh, observation that I made over the last, uh, I would say, six to 12 months, which is that with growing competition uh, to cover this information, either at national level or European level, because there is the news agenda has grown. So the first impact for political B2B uh, business has to, uh, is to stay ahead of the competition to keep our competitive edge, which is good because competition is always healthy in my world. So that's the first major impact. And what it means for us is that we need to keep being very um, very close to our class and understanding how this news agenda impacts their requirement in terms of services. For instance, if you see the war in Ukraine and you see how quickly it had an impact, A, from a policy standpoint and how uh, inst- political institutions have uh, regrouped together and stuck together to respond to this solution, to this situation, sorry, uh, that is creating demand for information. So that has uh, opened up opportunities for other uh, media or new media to provide these services because it's, there is a growing demand. Uh, but at the same time, we need to invent, invent and we need to be creative in sort of services which is translating this information. Transla- how, what is the impact on the business? How do you, can you anticipate political trends and how these political trends will impact the business down the line. So there's sort of risk management uh, opportunity and environment that we need to look into. I mean, if you take elections in Italy, for instance, the latest ones, what, how do we translate that? What does it mean? So we know there's a new person being elected and we kind of saw the program. Uh, what is the impact on legislation? What is the impact on the business? And how will it impact the relationship with bustles? These are new things that we need to cover. Um, but these additional services, this additional client centricity, I would say. Yeah. So it sounds like offering more uh, editorial or exclusive kind of insights to make sure the subscription service you're offering stays above the competition. Um, because remind me what the price point is for uh, enterprise is going to be a different kind of pricing model. But what's the like standard subscription rate for uh, Politico EU? We have an average um, per client about 17K euros. So it fluctuates. Yeah. So compared to the to your point, the competitive set, that's going to likely be a lot heftier than some of the other options out there on the market. But again, it depends on, uh, competi- there's competition and competition. Some are competition related to data monitoring. Some are more competition related to news coverage. Um, it's it's a mix of everything that, uh, that makes the, the, uh, the price point. But I would say there are three um, pillars that we need to uh, stay close to. One is access to data. Second is uh, non-partisan journalism. And three is also some level of analysis, explaining what data and journalism, how translating that into, as I said, risk assessment, forecasting, uh, situation, scenarios. We need to help business leaders to make the right decisions for their business. And they think long time. It's not 
next year or the following year. They think five years. So we need to help them navigate through uncertainty. Mm-hmm. And have you been investing in the past year in some of those maybe analytical offerings? Are there new products that are included in the subscription to keep adjusting for some of the uncertainties that are happening right now? Like, I guess, has there been a level of investment in that kind of differentiator for your subscription product? So the answer is yes. We looking. We are looking at uh, uh, additional uh, services and also additional coverage. Uh, and this is also in discussion and in connection with our cl- closer collaboration with North America. So I can't reveal things today, but yes, we are looking into new things. Um, and it's, I would say, two dimensions. One is geographical related and second is services related. So, yeah, the answer is yes. We've got good plans for 2023. Got it. Got it. And so it, it does sound like it's to kind of tying back into that uh, globalization um, at a at a much broader level. Um, so within that, is there a bundling strategy that you're looking at for, you know, people who are currently subscribed to Politico EU and maybe separately subscribed to US? Like, are you looking to kind of create synergies uh, between those two subscription products at all? Yes. Again, details have not been uh, completely set yet. But one simple thing is making sure that uh, from a user experience perspective, a pro client has easy access to uh, the content in North America and the content in Brussels. So as you can imagine, to do that, we need to make sure that uh, tech is aligned. We need to make sure that the platforms are aligned. We need to make sure that the uh, signing process is aligned. So these are things that are in the making and obvious, I would say, sort of details we need to look at. But for me, it's about the seamless experience uh, for a customer to have access to everything. It's the same across a website, an app, or a platform. We need to do that first as a priority, and then we need to uh, look at the value proposition. It's about the value. For me, what is important to understand is, for me, everything related to packages and bundling and pricing, first and foremost, is the value proposition to the client. Pricing is based on value proposition and nothing else. So we need to make sure that uh, from a client perspective, again, uh, one plus one equals three. We need to make sure that if we are encouraging our clients uh, to make the to have to make the most of the services we have across North America and across Europe for now, it has to be a benefit. It has to be uh, incremental to the client. And then once we've 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 been through that, and when the value proposition is set, then we can look at pricing. We can look at bundling or one bundling. But first priority is to make sure that we're going to add value to what the client needs from us. Absolutely. And so looking at 2022 holistically, have you seen growth in number of, you know, clients on the B2B side? Are you Have you increased number of um, subscriptions that were sold? Uh, or is that kind of, I guess, holding true, decreasing at all? I mean, to, I mean, to your point about just competition, obviously there's going to be, uh, I'm sure, some impact there. But I'm curious, you know, Growth-wise, how has that business netted out for this year? So from a B2B subscription perspective, uh, we've seen growth uh, both in volume and value terms. So uh, hopefully and luckily, we're adding new logos every year uh, Yeah, from existing markets and new markets and also additional services. So um, and could be an extra number of users, uh, could be subscription to new services that people didn't know about. Um, so yeah, so the growth has come from both value and, and volume. 
And I want to touch on events too. I think uh, we touched on it a little bit, but I am curious if you mentioned that there is a lot of um, crossover between subscribers uh, and media services. So, you know, clients of your subscription product advertising with you as well. Um, I'm curious how much of that takes place at events because I feel like to your point about needing to you know, have conversations about big political uh, or policy changes, right? That would make sense to happen in kind of an event format where you're face-to-face with a lot of the community that you're trying to reach. I guess, how's your events business doing, first of all? Um, But also, how are those two areas really convening at that point? Um, Or are there different areas in which those two businesses kind of meet at a central point? So to to your question about 2022 and our events business has been a great year. It's been a record year for us, uh, comparing obviously to pre-COVID period. So that's the first, um, I would say, source of satisfaction that we've seen so far this year. And then events for us is a sort of 360 approach because we could organize events for our B2B uh, uh, clients. For instance, we can organize workshops. We can bring them onto smaller groups and have conversation on a specific topic. So it's a kind of a a meet and learn exercise. Uh, Events is also we have some clubs. We have a global public affair clubs. We launch a global uh, impact and sustainability club. So we give these people the opportunity to do peer-to-peer connection, which is different from the workshops. We also have more traditional sort of events, which are uh, summits. So we do political on-brand summits uh, around finance, tech, sustainability, very successful um, because they are, because of our non-partisan journalism approach uh, and because our access to uh, the power centers uh, around politics and policy, we bring the right audience we cover the right topic, we trigger the right conversation. So it's been very successful from a summit perspective. And then interestingly, the last thing I would say is that from a sort of custom event perspective, we've seen a return to custom events, a a, a growth in demand from clients and more and more from a physical standpoint. So they want to go back into rooms and meet and mingle together. So across the board, um, our event is covering well our media solution, which are more larger type of uh, regrouping and gathering of individuals, to the uh, B2B side, which is more nimble, more uh, intimate and from a different purpose. But we can have someone as a pro subscriber who would benefit from a workshop, attending a workshop. He could be a speaker on the other side of a political summit or he could attend another uh, event. So... Again, the way I said, I see my clients as um, agnostic of what they uh, what they buy from us. It's the same from an audience perspective. I want my, I want the audience of Politico to touch base uh, with uh, our portfolio in multiple ways. It's just bringing them to the ecosystem of Politico and make them profit from it. Got it. I'm sure. Again, this would be more editorial side, but in my mind, I'm like. Having a sponsor be a speaker at a non-sponsored event, I'm sure can have some journalistic kind of, is that okay kind of thing? But again, I feel like if you're doing client-side events and then, I mean, your events business is so broad, right? So is there that kind of like journalistic kind of stopgap between where someone can advertise and where someone's, you know, seen as a 
a speaker for something. Yeah, we have uh, strict. What I explain is that an individual can do multiple things, but not at the same time. So we have strict rules, and we have a the way we have nonpartisan journalism. We also respect the church and state uh, between the sales side and the editorial side. So it is very important for uh, political events to uh, provide this independence of opinion. So we've got clear um, uh, guidelines around sponsorship between uh, being a sponsor or being a speaker. Um, it's clear, and our clients know about it. So, um, but as I said to you earlier on. The interesting position uh, or the situation for Politico is that a single individual could be a, a source of information. It could be uh, a contact for for sourcing information. It could be an audience. It could be a, a, a subscriber to our pro services or so having access to our platform. But also it could be a head of a brand that want to uh, talk to audience through sponsorships, through advertising and everything. So it's a 360 approach, but the... Um, the clear line between uh, my side of the business and the editorial side of the business is absolutely uh, critical and, um, and it works really well. Yeah, no so it sounds like the revenue per user is can be extraordinarily high depending on how involved they are in that 360 approach. Yeah, absolutely. All right, last question for you because I know we're coming up to the end of the interview, but um, – Obviously, a lot of brands are now sitting under the Axel Springer kind of portfolio. Um, Insiders in there, I think Morning Brew's in there now, um, and the in Protocol, the other kind of tech-focused brand that was in under the Politico umbrella from founder of. Um, but I'm curious. Obviously, there's this merging between. Politico U.S., Politico EU. Is there any other kind of, uh, you know, partnerships or, or are you working with the other brands now that are in the Axel Springer family? Like, has there been any kind of, um, even at a high level, like, you know, strategy session with any other brands there? Or is Politico very much its own entity still? So Politico Europe has always been part of the Axel Springer family since its launch. And to that extent, has uh, been part of the international uh, portfolio of uh, of brands. We do talk to each other. We 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 share um, best practice. We try to uh, also look at talent management. So nothing has changed on that side because we were already talking to them. I mean, I meet with the protocol uh, staff. I meet with the uh, insider staff. Um, so yes, we if we see opportunities to. Again, it's the same uh, as I said earlier on. If a client will have benefits in working with both, uh, for instance, political and insiders, uh, we will. We're not trying. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's this interesting position to each business has to develop its own uh, growth. But again, if you're client centric, which we are, if a client has benefits working with both brands, we're going to find the synergies and work together. It's, it's it will be a natural uh, natural fit. It has to be customer centric, so we start from the customers first. Thank you so much for joining us on the Digiday Podcast. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. And thank you for listening to the Digiday Podcast. We'll be back next week with another episode. <laughs>